Okay, Jesse, last week's triangle was pretty crazy. What's the story this time around? This episode is about a monstrous murderer who tortured her victims and her loved ones alike, as well as the survival story of some truly brave young women. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about broken promises, terrible tribulations, and as always, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And again, every week I thank you guys and talk about how excellent you are. But you really made it, <laughs> made my week this week because I have two extremely sick kids. It's been a ride. It has been a gross week over here in the Widow Prey household. So thank you for all your nice words. It's turned this mama frown upside down. <laughs> You've had a, a big frown to correct as well. So it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So I think we should jump right in. And, and talking about frowns upside down, guys, I am really excited to share the story with you because I think it's a really important story that needs to be told, but it is another definitely like love murder bummer story. There's going to be less of the typical Andy and Jesse humor in this one. So as this is one of the heaviest stories we've ever covered on love murder, I am not only going to throw out some trigger warnings here. I'm also going to change the format a little to discuss this case before we dig in rather than our traditional intro. So first off, we had so many requests for this story, specifically because the book we used for our source material was so unbelievable. I'm not even kidding. Probably somewhere between 10 and 20 people have just sent me a link to this book. The book is If You Tell by Greg Olson. Oh, Greg Olson. Yeah. And this is absolutely has to be his most famous work. I was looking on Amazon's list of like their top true crime books. And it was in the number one spot. Wow. Yeah. So everybody who sent me links to If You Tell, thank you so much. It really is an incredible story and a heartbreaking ride. The trigger warnings involve heinous child abuse, both physically and emotionally, torture, and of course, murder. So Andy, this is the case of a woman who is one of the most continually cruel people I've ever come across. She displays a lifetime of abusive behaviors and consistent evil doing against those that she is supposed to love and protect. This is a story that leaves at least three people murdered and those that survived with lasting scars both on the inside and out. But it's also a story of bravery, faith, love, and doing the right thing despite decades of gaslighting and a very real, very terrifying fear of retribution. In the end, you'll see that one monster is unable to diminish the spirits of our survivors and that love does occasionally conquer all. So in the deepest, darkest parts of the story today, I hope you remember that there will be some sun after the storm. And I hope you can all remember that in life too. There's always a little light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. There is, there is. And there will be. So we're going to get through some gnarly parts of this story 
but there's going to be a little bit of happiness at the end. So let's jump right in and let this horror unfold. Laura Stallings was a recent high school graduate when she took a job selling cheeseburgers at a bowling alley in Battleground, Washington in 1958. There she met the charming owner, a full-time bullshitter named Les Watson. Les was 10 years older than Lara, but claimed to be only four years older when they met. That would be only the beginning of some of his lies and omissions. Les had been a track and football star in Battleground, and at 6'2", he still cut an athletic figure and was known as something of a big shot in town. In addition to the bowling alley, he also owned a couple of nursing homes with his mother. It's no wonder that Lara was swept off her feet by the smooth talker. The two were married less than two years later in a civil ceremony in 1960. Lara's family begrudgingly showed up despite the fact they weren't in favor of the union and Les's parents didn't even come. Why weren't they in favor? Because this guy had kids from previous relationship and he had essentially abandoned them, I think. Plus, she was very young and he was 10 years older than her. And that's a big difference when you're like 18 and 28, you know? So they were like 20 and 30. And when there's kids involved and speaking of omissions. And I mean, her parents would have been even more against match if they knew this was going to happen. One day after the wedding, Lara was shocked to receive a phone call from Les's first wife, Sharon, asking her when they were going to come pick up the damn kids. Oh, so she's 20 years old. She just married this guy who's a decade older. And she finds out that Les had actually told his first wife that they were going to take full custody of the children. Wow. Okay. That's a shock. And he had not run this by her at all. Did he just assume that it was going to be fine once they were married? And that's exactly what he thought. Okay. Yeah. And I think that there was part of him that obviously was trying to get her to sign on the dotted line before he made this revelation. Not, yeah, not good. Not good. No, not a good move. So Laura was like, "I, I don't think this is our situation. Hold on. Let me talk to Les about this. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I meant to tell you this, but, you know, Sharon's a depressive alcoholic and we need to take the kids. I just couldn't take the kids before because, you know, I worked so much and nobody was here to take care of them. But now that I'm married, you get to take care of them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they did go and pick up the children. There was three babies. Shelly, the eldest, was a six-year-old girl. Chuck was three. And then there was actually an, a baby infant named Paul who was like one. So yeah. Wait. If you also wait. match up these ages. Yeah. I'm like doing the math. I'm like, wait a minute. So <laughs> did he have so he this got baby pregnant. After, <laughs> after he knew Lara at some point? Yeah. Yeah. But even like, so he slept with his ex-wife and got her pregnant while he was he already must a have. couple months in with Laura. Yeah, they didn't really discuss this in Greg Olson's book, like exactly the timeline. But if they met in 1958, they married in 1960, and the baby was still described as an infant, then yeah. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. It has to be. So anyway, so she kept the youngest, Paul, the the mother did. And Shelly, who was six, and Chuck, who was three, did go to live with Laura and Les. So right away, Laura picked up on a strange dynamic between the children. Chuck almost never talked, and Shelly made up for it by talking for him. And as they grew, Lara felt that Shelly kind of controlled and dominated her little brother. 
Once Sharon dropped off the kids, it seemed like she put them out of her mind for good. There were no birthday cards, no gifts, not even a phone call on Christmas. So she just kind of disappeared from these kids' lives. When Shelly was only 13 in the spring of 1967, a call came from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department with horrifying news. Sharon, Shelly and Chuck's biological mother, had been beat to death in a seedy motel room on Skid Row. Oh, no. The worst part of this, I think, for Shelly and for Laura even, was that Nobody seemed to care. Her remains were later sent to Sharon's mother, and Sharon's mother refused to take them. No one held a memorial service for her. And 13-year-old Shelly even, like, barely reacted to the news. Meanwhile, poor baby Paul had been in her custody this entire time. What? With absolutely no supervision. He had experienced some terrible things. They said that, At some point, they believe Sharon had been a sex worker. She was absolutely addicted to drugs. They have no idea what exactly Paul witnessed throughout his early childhood. Or even if he was present, it does not say whether he was present for his mother's murder, but it's entirely possible he could have been. Oh my God, that's horrifying. Yeah. So he had gone through some stuff. And Lara said that when he came to live with them, he was like a wild animal. He was a nine-year-old child who carried a switchblade. That was my next question was he has to be around if she was 13 yeah. from six. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. So he's like this nine-year-old kid who is carrying a switchblade that's constantly like on the attack because he probably had to defend himself as a baby, as a little kid. Why did he stay with I don't know. I mean, that's what when I was talking to Nathaniel about this story, he was like, how do you take two kids and leave the last one? Especially the last one who's most helpless. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So despite all of this, shockingly, Shelly was the one who was the problem child for Laura. She showed sadistic behavior from an extremely early age. She would tell lies to and about various family members to sow discard, set fires, steal money, and even chop up little bits of glass to put in her little brother's shoes. Oh, no. So Lara claimed that Shelly had inherited her sadistic nature from her paternal grandmother, Anna, Les's mom. Once Lara witnessed Anna literally flush an employee's head in the toilet for perceived bad behavior. Um, Jesse. That's crazy. What? Yeah. She said that she literally, when somebody didn't do some task at the nursing home, she's a nursing home employee, she grabbed the woman's head and flushed her toilet in the toilet bowl. I I cannot, I cannot believe. That anyone could get away with that in a professional setting. So she's got it from both sides. So she, her mom's side has yes. obviously some mental illness and then obviously... Her dad's grandmother is very sadistic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Her grandmother is absolutely. And she just really liked humiliating people. That's why that like act of flushing somebody's head down a toilet isn't just aggressive. It's humiliating. And that was her favorite thing. And she certainly wasn't above humiliating her own granddaughter, who Shelly was her favorite, just to prove a point to Lara. Once when picking up Shelly from a visit, Lara found Shelly's beautiful, thick auburn hair hacked to pieces 
and a shorn, like very unattractive, sad job, like like Cersei from Game of Thrones when she yeah. like has to go to the nunnery, you know? It looked terrible and Shelly was clearly demoralized. Grandma Anna told Lara that it was her fault for not keeping Shelly's hair brushed. Oh. So Lara was like, oh my gosh, like that's that's not true, Anna. Like I brush her hair every day. Like what are you talking about? How dare you do this to her? But Anna was just very pleased with herself. And apparently she had manipulated Shelly to a point where Shelly was not mad at her own grandmother for doing this to her. She was mad at Laura yep. because the entire time she was cutting her hair, she was going, this is because of your stepmother. This is because yep. your stepmother can't keep your hair brushed. I have to do this now. I'm actually helping you, you know? Yep. Wow. So manipulative. So manipulative. So Shelly became her greatest pupil and would in time even grossly outdo her sadistic mentor. At 15, Shelly told a school counselor that her father, Les, had been raping her. The school immediately <sighs> sent Shelly to have an examination done to prove the sexual abuse and get Shelly out of her parents' custody immediately. Les and Laura were shocked when they were notified. Les categorically denied the accusation. So Laura was like head was spinning and they're like, well, she's in the hospital and then she's going to go into, you know, child protective care custody. And Laura's like, this can't possibly be true. So she went into Shelly's room to try to figure out like what was going on or if she had a journal or if there was like any truth or evidence to this yep. allegation, you know. Uh -huh. And she found a copy of True Confessions magazine. And the head story, the one that was on the cover, was I was raped at 15 by my dad. So, yeah, Lara knew immediately where Shelly had gotten this awful idea. So she took the magazine for evidence, but she didn't end up needing any additional help to support her husband. The doctor who examined Shelly found that her hymen was completely intact and she had no otherwise bruising, swelling, or like any other indication that something physical like a sexual assault or rape had happened. Wow. Yeah. So did she not realize how serious of an accusation that was or she just hated her dad or what? Where did that come from? She she didn't care. I don't think I think that as we get further into the story, she likes humiliating people. She likes hurting people. She doesn't live as if there's consequences for her own actions. OK. And I do think I do not know what she thought like when they were doing an examination because you uh, hopefully be aware that they were going to prove your allegations wrong, you know? Yeah. I mean, but a 15. I mean, it could have been anything. He could have told her he didn't want her to go out on a date or something, or she had a curfew he doesn't like. She responds outsized to anyone telling her what she can and cannot do. Okay. And at this point, Les was on the Chamber of Commerce in Battleground. So had that allegation gotten out, it would have completely ruined him, his businesses, his entire life. Wow. So they decided that Shelly needed to move out. Plus, at this point, the school wanted to expel her after her false allegation. So she moved in with Laura's parents for a little while. But it was short-lived as Shelly would do things like volunteer to do the dishes and actually just throw everything into the garbage. Plates, silverware, pans, pots, everything just into the trash. Oh, <laughs> that would take up a lot of space. Exactly. And so her grandparents were like, okay, I don't know what to do with you. They had, like, Laura's family had a lot of grandchildren. And 
her parents at certain times had taken in like her siblings, kids and stuff. So like they were used to this. They had never seen anything like this. It was the only grandkid that they could not connect with, figure out what to do with. And soon Shelly tried to also say that her step-grandfather had molested her as well. Oh my gosh. Okay. So they were like, okay, you got to get out of here. So she ended up bouncing around to various family members and getting kicked out of school for cruel behavior to her fellow students. An old favorite of hers was bits of glass in other kids' shoes. She did that at school, too, and got kicked out. Mm -hmm. So eventually she lied to Les's sister, Katie, who lived on the East Coast. And she said that Laura, her stepmother, was being physically abusive to her, which, of course, was not true. But Katie fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, and called Laura and was like, look, I know exactly what you're doing to that poor child, and I'm going to have her come live with me and my husband. And Laura was like, God bless you. Good luck. Godspeed. She like even said to Greg Olson, like, hallelujah, the Lord has answered my prayers. That child is going to live somewhere else. Like she did not care at all that Shelly had lied about this alleged abuse. She was just like, you're gone. That's great. I mean, how is Katie supposed to not believe a young girl reaching out? You know what I mean? Like, it's like a cry for help. Like, how are you supposed to, obviously it's better to have like an actual conversation with the other adult. But if you think that they're also abusing the child. I would 100% be like, I'm getting you out of there tomorrow. Don't worry. Like you're coming to live with me. No one's ever going to hurt you again. I mean, I think it was actually probably nice of Katie and her husband to, to do this great and generous act to take in this like troubled teen, but it did not pay off for them. The mistake of bringing Shelly into their home would end up costing Katie her marriage as Shelly would end up causing so much discord between the couple that they ended up divorcing. Wow. By the time Katie and her husband Frank broke up, Shelly was 17 and had already met the boy who would end up being husband number one. Randy Rivardo met Shelly in Pennsylvania during her East Coast sojourn and the two became high school sweethearts. Shelly and Randy broke up briefly after graduation and Shelly returned to Washington State where she took a job as a nurse's aide at her father's nursing home. She ultimately convinced Randy to come out to the West Coast with the promise of a job and a rent-free apartment furnished by Les. Randy was welcomed by the Watsons. A little too welcomed, in fact. Randy got the overall impression that Les was desperately trying to marry his wayward daughter off. Oh, my God. (laughs) He, like, showed up and they're like, hello, son-in-law, so let's make the wedding happen. (laughs) (laughs) What do we need to do? Exactly. To get you to marry my daughter. Uh-huh. He later said, they rushed this thing so much that Les picked out my best man because I didn't have any friends or family in the area. It was that quick. Wow. So did they get married like that first trip? Yeah. I think he had only been there for a couple months when they got married. Wow, they were both only 19. Oh. Sadly, none of Randy's relatives made it to the February 1973 wedding. Later, Randy would discover it was because Shelly who told him that she was going to mail the invitations to his family, had actually thrown them in the garbage. She loves doing that. She loves loves throwing throwing them in the garbage. garbage. They need to get like a dumpster wherever she is, you know? She's just (laughs) throwing it in the garbage. Seriously. As is often on our show, the honeymoon was short-lived. Almost immediately, Shelly became unhappy with living in a trailer on a parcel of rural land and also began simply not going to work. Like she would say like, I have menstrual cramps. I just don't feel good. I have a headache. So like once she got married, she just stopped going to work to the point where 
her dad fired her from one nursing home. So then she went to go work at the other one. And then she was doing that again. So he fired her from that one. And then like she was bouncing around to his properties before he finally was like, you can't work for me at all. Like you don't show up for work, you know? Yeah, I don't get I don't get why you think it'd be fine going to another nursing home if you're doing the same thing at another one. Exactly. I think he was probably doing it just to save face with his employees that worked in one. Got like, it, got it, got it. I'm not going to let okay. her work any here anymore. Obviously, she's not a good worker. And then trying to put her in another situation, <laughs> giving her another chance, and she just does the same thing all over again. Yeah. So yeah, she at this point expected that her teen husband would provide for her, but also get her a nicer house. She was not a fan of the trailer that they were living in. So initially, Randy just tried to ignore Shelly's bad behaviors, which caused her to escalate to more dire attention-seeking moves, like pretending to commit suicide. She told him she overdosed, but when they pumped her stomach, she had like two aspirin in it. And also pretending that she was attacked and raped by a stranger at their trailer while Randy was in class at nearby Clark College. Oh my god. Oh my god, that makes me ill. The only evidence of this attack was some scratches on Shelly's face and the sheriff's office eventually determined that they were self-inflicted. So despite all parties knowing that Shelly was certainly lying, this episode did convince Les to help his daughter move into a safer house right in town, exactly what Shelly had wanted. With a nice new home secured, Shelly got pregnant and gave birth to her first child, a beautiful baby girl named Nikki Rivardo in February of 1975. Shelly became even more controlling after Nikki's arrival, demanding that Randy hand his paychecks directly to her. And when he refused, she convinced her father, who is his employer, to give them directly to her anyway. Doesn't it just go into the joint account, though? I think she was putting it into her own account. She was controlling his the access to his own money. Hmm. She also began locking Randy out of the house and forcing him to sleep in his car. Oh, my God. Uh, poor Randy. Yeah, and so there's no surprise that he, like, boot scoot boogied out of there as fast as possible, and he went back to the East Coast. And, you know, you'll see this again. Like, apparently he made some effort to try to stay in Nikki's life, but Shelly thwarted him at every opportunity. So he ends up, unfortunately, not having a place in his daughter's life at all. Is Laura around at all? She was. There's like this whole section of the story that Laura's very deeply involved in. Then she's like kind of not for a while. Then she's back again. So you'll see. Basically, at this point, Randy's out of Nikki's life. And then shortly after Randy left Shelly, Shelly actually dumped Nikki, who was at this point, I think, like a young toddler with a relative and said that she was going to go away for a weekend. And she just never came back. So Laura did at this point take Nikki because she was called by the relative. And Laura actually took care of Nikki for an entire year. Okay. Until Shelly resurfaced. No one to this day, as far as I know, other than Shelly, knows what happened in that year or where she was or what she was up to. Okay. But after a year, she showed back up. She took her daughter back from Laura. And by the time she had reappeared, she had also met a new man, a man named Danny Long, And she married him at the age of 24 while already very pregnant with baby number two. Daughter Samantha joined the family two months later in August of 1978. History repeated itself and Shelly attempted to control and manipulate Danny, but Danny pushed back way harder than most did with Shelly. And it became a very toxic relationship 
a very dangerous battle of the wills. Okay. So the couple fought constantly, and I'm talking plates smashed on the floor, holes punched in the wall. With the babies around? Uh-huh, on the regular. Unsurprisingly, they divorced before their fifth wedding anniversary with Shelly's dad paying for her divorce attorney. Five years. That is longer than I think I expected. And it was longer than Randy lasted. Yep. By the time the papers were signed, it was 1983, and Shelly already had another man on the hook. His name was Dave Notek, and he had been raised by a timberman father and a mother who worked in an oyster canning factory. Oh, my gosh. It's a very Pacific Northwest, huh? Yes, yeah. (laughs) Dave's family was pretty hard scrabble. It was definitely the kind of family that, you know, didn't have any money for extras. You weren't expected to go to higher education. And, like, very much, like, believes corporal punishment is normal. So, like, Dave grew up getting, like, beat the shit out of him by, like, belts and straps and, you know, stuff like that, switches and... But he would have told you that that was totally normal. That's just how people discipline their kids, you know? Yep. So it was like that type of upbringing. After high school, Dave joined the Navy. And after he was discharged from the Navy, he went to work at a timber company in his hometown of Raymond, Washington, a tiny town of less than 3,000 people. Following a bad breakup, Dave Notak drove down to Long Beach, Washington, and went into a bar called The Sore Thumb, which is where he met Shelly and was instantly awestruck by her. He later said this about their first meeting. She really looked like a movie star in some of them old films. A wow. Other guys were hitting on her right and left, and I just looked at her. Pretty soon, she came over to my table just as I was ready to ask her to dance. Not long after that meeting, the two began a relationship, and Shelly quickly introduced Dave to her daughters. Dave was charmed by the two sweet little girls and even more charmed by their good-looking mama. So when Shelly told him that she had cancer and feared for her daughter's future, he stepped right up to become the girl's stepdad. Whoa. First, he moved the family to Raymond with him, and then a couple years later, Shelly and Dave made it official by getting married on December 28th of 1987. One of the witnesses to the marriage was a friend of Shelley's named Kathy Loreno, who would go on to have a very significant role in the story. Even before they were officially married, Shelley had begun isolating Dave from his family and friends. After that, she began to assert total control over Dave, alternating between sweet and abusive behaviors until he was just psychologically just trying constantly to get on her good side, you know? In Dave Notak, she had finally found what she'd always looked for in a man, a passive victim so hungry for her love that he would literally do anything she asked, include become an accomplice in some horrifying crimes. Oh, my God. The family moved into a rented home in Old Willapa, and at first, it seemed like a fairy tale come true. There was plenty of land, and the house was nice. The master bedroom was downstairs, and each girl had their own room up a rickety staircase with an area in between they could use as a playroom. Unfortunately, this is where the abuse truly began. It was here that Shelly would begin to horrifically beat the girls for the smallest infraction, something like using her hairbrush without her permission. Oh, my God. Shelly would use fishing poles, belts, spatulas, and even electrical cords to beat the girls. She also psychologically tormented them by not punishing them until the very middle of the night. So she would not in the moment tell them why she was upset about something or even punish them right away. 
She would wait until they were dead asleep and warm in their beds. And then she would drag them out, like waking them up, dragging them physically out of the house in the middle of a Washington winter and beat them in the yard. Oh, my God. The girls took to wearing heavy clothing over their pajamas so they could be prepared for the ice cold freezingness. <sighs> Jesse. This is also like military like torture techniques. The fact that you don't know at any point if you're going to be dragged out of your bed in the middle of the night and hurt and tortured. Yeah, no one should ever go through that. No. She soon moved on to humiliating the girls. She would force them to get permission to use the bathroom, like use the toilet. Yep. And she wouldn't allow them to access a shower, sometimes for a week or two at a time, making school a terrible and embarrassing experience. Like nobody wants to become like the dirty, smelly kid. And she was forcing that on her children. One of the most absolutely horrifying things that Shelly did was force Nikki and almost always only Nikki to, quote, wallow. Now, this one really, really horrified me. So, again, trigger warning, y'all. Year-round, so even in the freezing cold winter, Shelly would wake Nikki up in the middle of the night and force her to strip completely naked. She would then verbally berate her, calling her disgusting and a piece of shit while pushing her into a muddy puddle that she was forced to squat in. Shelly would then have Dave spray Nikki with an ice-cold hose. Nikki would cry and beg her mother to stop. She'd scream apologies for whatever it was that she did, which most times she didn't even know why Shelly was upset. And Shelly would only tell her to, quote, wallow, which is where the nickname for this came from, which meant she had to lower herself as completely in the dark, cold, dirty ground as possible. In the winter, a naked, shivering Nikki was forced to actually break the ice on the top of the puddle so that she could lay in the icy cold water. Oh, my God. Yeah. After a very long time with Nikki turning blue, Shelly would then force her into a scalding bath she would literally be like, oh, you want to get warm now? You want to get warm now? And then she would turn on only the hot water, none of the cold, and force her freezing body into now a boiling bath, which if, you know, if you've ever like been a little kid that's jumped from like a freezing cold pool into a hot tub or something like that, you, you know that sensation? Only imagine it's going from freezing to boiling burn your skin off hot. Mm-mm. So Nikki is and was unbelievably tough, but she would cry the entire time as her mother just kept calling her names, calling her a pig, telling her she deserved this. Later on, it would be hard for Nikki to recall how many times she'd been made to wallow, but she said it was most likely in the high dozens. Wow. For whatever reason, Shelly always targeted sweet, pretty Nikki. She tended to get the harshest, most dehumanizing punishments. One summer, Shelly locked Nikki in her room for two months. She gave her a bucket for waste, and the poor girl wasn't allowed to talk to the family for that entire summer. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, I mean, Nikki later said, you know, it sounds terrible, you know, that I had to be locked away and I wasn't allowed to have any social contact. But actually, while I was locked up, my mom couldn't beat me up, and she gave me a box full of paperbacks, so I just, like, got to read and and nobody was abusing me. So it actually wasn't so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, Sammy was like the favorite kid and she was allowed to do kind of whatever she wanted. And I guess that their dog had puppies during this period that Nikki was locked up. 
And so Sammy would get beat if she was caught talking to Nikki, but apparently like she really wanted her sister to get to play with the puppies. So while Shelly was off running an errand one day, Sammy like threw pebbles at her window until she opened it up up her window and sent down her waste bucket. And then Sammy cleaned the bucket out and put two puppies in the bucket so that she could raise it back up and Nikki could play with the puppies for a little bit. Oh my God, Jesse. Isn't that so sad and sweet? Yeah, that's so fucked up. When Shelly did finally let her out, she became so enraged with Nikki for some imagined slight that she ended up pushing the child through a plate glass window. So, of course, Nikki was covered with cuts, some so deep that they should have required medical attention. Naturally, Shelly wasn't going to take her to the hospital, so she, like, bandaged her up as best she could. And then she kind of, like, did the love bombing thing where she realized she had gone too far and for the first time ever took Nikki out to dinner. She ended up taking her to a professional hairstylist to get her hair done. Like, she had absolutely never done those things before. And so Nikki was just like, oh, maybe my mom does love me. Maybe this is okay, you know? Ugh. So by now, Dave Notak, urged by Shelley, had quit his job with the timber company and was working for a construction company located on Whidbey Island some five hours away. So he would only come home on weekends. So Shelley had all week to torture exactly as she saw fit at this point. Apparently, with all of the extra time, she decided she needed to acquire a new victim. Enter poor Shane. So remember the youngest baby brother, Paul, who had gone through such hell with her biological mother? Yeah. Unsurprisingly, his life hadn't turned out so peachy. Paul had dropped out of school at 15, disappearing into a life of crime until he reappeared in Battleground at 18 with a pregnant girlfriend. Baby Shane Watson was born in June of 1975. Oh, so no. he's Paul's son. Due to a mother who had an unfortunate substance abuse issue and Paul, who was frequently in prison, Shane had been left homeless at a disturbingly young age. Eventually, Laura was able to find sweet Shane and Shelly welcomed the boy with open arms. At the time, Laura believed that Shelly was a saint to take in her nephew, and Shane had been lucky to have a home with his similarly aged cousin. So, uh, Laura didn't know. She knew that Shelly was troubled, but she kind of felt like Shelly's more sadistic behavior had gone away with motherhood. She had no idea that the girls were being abused, and she talked to them on the phone frequently and visited, and the girls said nothing or did not give her any indication that it was happening. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, they're going to get beaten <laughs> if they do. Exactly. I mean, it's not surprising why they hid that from her, you know? Yeah. So when Shane, you know, she found out that Shelly would be willing to take Shane and of course, you know, like the benefits as well as like the, the you know, the benefits that you get from taking on another dependent. Laura was psyched. She was like, he deserves to be in a house with, you know, his peers, which are the girls, the cousins. So at this point, Nikki was 14, Shane was 13, and Sammy was 10. Wow. But Laura would someday find out it might have been safer to allow Shane to fend for himself in the streets than put him in this household. Shelly started out very sweet and welcoming to Shane. Though she did force him to sleep in the basement, she made it very cozy, setting up a bed with new fresh bedding and helping him decorate with his few belongings so he felt more at home. At first, sweet Shane, with his dark hair and big brown eyes, did feel lucky to be in his new home. Sammy and Nikki loved him like a brother. 
His good looks, affable personality, and goofy nature made him instantly popular at his new school. But slowly, Shelley started in on Shane as well. She gave him some chores to start, but then the list grew endless and Shelley began to punish him for not finishing his work or not doing it up to her standards. Soon, she began to take things away from him. First his pillow, then his blanket. Then she took his bed away completely and forced him to sleep on the cold basement floor. Shelly took away his bathroom privileges and made him shower only once every other week. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say once every week, and then you said every other. Every other week. Even worse, she gave him only one set of clothes to wear to school every single day and rarely let him launder them. That's so messed up to do to him at school as well. It is so messed up. Even in the best of circumstances, teenage boys smell let alone you not letting them shower unless it's every other week and you don't let them launder their one set of clothing. It's horrifying. Shane quickly went from the popular cute new boy to the smelly, greasy, weird kid that no one wanted to hang out with. Oh my God, it's so sad. Soon, Shelly upped the humiliation factor. She began to force Nikki and Shane, who were 14- and 13-year-old cousins who felt like siblings, to strip and slow dance in the living room in front of the whole family. What? Yeah. She would even do this when Dave was home for the weekend. Sammy would later say, my dad would just sit there. My sister and Shane would be crying the whole time. You know, you just do it. You just don't refuse my mom. As we continue, you'll see that Shelly had an obsession with forcing her victims to do things in the nude. It was less about something sexual. It was more about control and power. It was to dehumanize them and assert her will. And it also served another nefarious purpose. If she kept her victims naked, they wouldn't be able to run away. Yeah, it's also embarrassing. It's the same as the grandmother. The humiliation factor, yep. Soon, Shane was exposed to wallowing, too, and Nikki and Shane were often left to sit outside in the snow in the nude. It got so bad that Nikki one day thought she would potentially die of pneumonia, and she said at that point she hoped she would. She wished for pneumonia to kill her. Yeah. However, the heat, or cold rather, would soon ease on Nikki and Shane as Shelley moved yet another person into this house of horrors. Kathy Loreno was a 30-year-old hairstylist and a good friend of Shelley's who had fallen on hard times. She's actually the one that I mentioned a little while ago as like was kind of the bridesmaid at Shelley and Dave's wedding. Kathy was born in 1958 in Hollywood, California as one of four children. Kathy's mom, Kay, had had a few short-lived marriages that caused the family to move around quite a bit. In 1977, when Kathy was 19, they ended up in South Bend, Washington, where Kathy attended beauty school and became a hairstylist. Kelly, Kathy's sister, described Kathy as a kind-hearted giver. She was generous almost to a fault. Kelly said that she would basically chauffeur her and her mother Kay around. She would deposit her paycheck into her mother's account so her mother would use Kathy's money for all of the household expenses and save her own money. And when Kathy's father died in a workplace accident, Kathy did receive some money from a wrongful death suit. She wanted to use the money to buy a new car. Instead, her mother compelled her to buy a house that was close by her own. So she did end up doing her mother's wishes over her own. But soon she couldn't keep up with the sales demands at her salon and she was fired. 
Kathy became depressed and began to drown financially, eventually losing her house. She was forced to move back in with her mother, who, despite the fact that Kathy had gone above and beyond for her mother and always provided financially for her, when Kathy moved in with her mom, her mom demanded that she start paying rent. Kathy didn't have any money to pay rent. So she was kind of screwed, but luckily, or really unluckily for her, she had a very good friend named Shelly Notek. So (sighs) Shelly swept in when Kathy was vulnerable, depressed, completely alone in the world, feeling betrayed by her family, and just completely broke, and just terribly grateful for Shelly and having a roof over her head. Yep. The moment that Kathy moved into that house, she was doomed. Make no mistake, Shelly is a predatory hunter, just like any serial killer. Kathy was exactly where Shelly wanted her to be. So Shelly told Dave, who did not want Kathy to come live with them. He's like, we've already got a full house with the kids that she needed to come live with them because you see at this point, Shelly was pregnant again with her third and last child. Yeah, but technically, I mean, they already have like three kids in the house, so it's going to be a fourth one now. Yeah, it's going to be a fourth one. So he's like, we already took in Shane. Why do we have to take in Kathy? And she's like, I need help. I'm having your baby. She's going to watch the kids in exchange for room and board. Okay. And he's also gone all week. So she made the argument that like, you're not around to help me. She She's going to be like the other adult in the household during the week yeah. here. So as usual, Shelly got her way. And Kathy moved in right around Christmas 1988. At first, Nikki and Shane kind of bristled about Kathy being there because she was just another person who yelled at them. And they were like, she was like, you're so ungrateful for everything your mom gives you. And she worshipped Shelly. Like, Shelly was good looking at this point in her life still. And just Kathy had this, like, weird worship over her. Like, oh, Shelly's so beautiful. Shelly's so smart. She's so generous. She's like the kindest person in the world. So, like, Nikki and Shane were like, what are you talking about? She is terrible, you know? Yeah. It was just like this blind devotion. But as the weeks turned into months and Shelly's dark attention turned to Kathy and stopped focusing on them, they came to appreciate the presence of Shelly's new victim. They would feel bad admitting it later, but any deflection of Shelly's wrath was a good thing. I mean, you're a teenager. You're tired of getting abused. You're like, abuse the adult, you know? Yeah. It's a lot harder, though. So she was systematically broke people down in a way that she should be like some sort of like torture hitman. It's insane how this woman did this. So baby Tori was born in June of 1989, approximately one week early. So Shelly told everyone that Tori was a preemie with undeveloped lungs. And the newborn did have a respiratory attack when she stopped breathing briefly when she first came home from the hospital. So Tori was brought back to the hospital for a week, but ultimately returned with a special bed and a monitor that would alert if Tori's oxygen levels became low. Frequently, the monitor would go off, and the girls reported later that they would come running down the stairs just in time to see Shelly rocking the baby to calm, cooing and smiling to the infant. However... One night, Nikki was just coming downstairs in general. Oh, I like and need saw to her mother prepare myself for this. Uh-huh. <sighs> saw Shelly smothering the baby with a pillow. So she was intentionally setting the alarm off. 
At first, Shelly seemed happy to have Kathy around and even put her up in the playroom space between the girls' bedrooms. But when she gave Sammy a pendant necklace for the little girl's birthday and Sammy announced that it was her favorite present. So basically, Kathy gave her this. It was just an old necklace of Kathy's. It wasn't anything new. It was just something she had. So basically later, Shelly was like, well, what present was your favorite, Sammy's? Like she had gotten her a popple. Do you remember popples? No. Oh, man, I wanted a popple so bad. It was like the cool toy at the time. So when she asked this of Sammy, I think who is just turning 10 or 11, she must have been 11 at this point, what her favorite present was. She was like, I loved Kathy's present. This necklace is so meaningful to me. I love it so much, you know. And apparently Shelly went apeshit. After the party was over, she literally took back all of the presents, destroyed everything, and beat the girl, like, senseless and was like, you ungrateful little bitch. Oh, my God. So this, of course, is unspeakably terrible towards Sammy. But Did I think Kathy witness it, any of this? I don't know if Kathy witnessed it, but she started getting treated even more poorly after this okay. because I think she all of a sudden became some competition for affection in the household. Yep. I mean, it's a lot to keep up with because she's also like, you know, suffocating her newborn. So there's like a lot. Yeah, she's got to torture the older kids. She's got to suffocate her newborn. And she's got to start systematically taking things away from her supposed best friend little by little. I mean, this is just like, how are you that evil? (laughs) It's, It's like my jaw was on the floor for this entire book. That's why I think so many people recommended it. And guys, I can't do this book justice. So if this is really interesting to you, I try to, you know, cover some of Shelley's greatest hits, but there's so much cruelty in this book. It would would take me eight hours to tell you everything that this woman did. So I would still very much encourage you to check out If You Tell by Greg Olson. First, with Kathy, Shelly began with lists of chores that Kathy couldn't keep up with or do right, just like with Shane. When Kathy failed, she would beat her. Next, Shelly began to drug Kathy with a mix of antidepressants, muscle relaxers, and pain pills to keep her confused and docile. Then Shelly began an insane gaslighting campaign. She would... Do things like berate Kathy for being overweight and call her all of these terrible derogatory terms. I mean, I don't even want to get into it. It's just disgusting the things she would call her. And then no matter what Kathy did, she would say, you're still eating, you fat pig. She would hide food under Kathy's bed like while she was drugged. And when Kathy got up, she'd be like, you fat pig, you were were sleepwalking and you went into our fridge and you stole all our food. Oh, my God. And she'd be like, that's why you can't lose weight because you're such a fat pig that you're eating in your sleep. And she'd be like, "I what? No, that doesn't make any sense. I've never slept walked in my life. And she'd be like, look under your bed, Kathy. And, and Kathy would find like a pie or something under her bed, having no idea how it got there. And she would get the kids to be like, yeah, I saw you. I saw you in the fridge, even though obviously she hadn't been. And then, I mean, she just took the cruelty up another step. She once told a humiliated Kathy that she had stripped naked and sexually propositioned teenage Shane while she was, quote, sleepwalking. And Shelly made Shane confirm that it had happened. 
she was like, tell her, Shane, tell her how disgusting it was. Tell her how you scared you were. And Shane was like, yeah, you did that. So, my God, none of that, none of that even remotely happened. We are in full gaslighting territory here. Kathy also forced Shane to hit or kick Kathy. And then she would tell Kathy that she would protect her from Shane. So, like, she would do it behind closed doors. Like, you have to go, like, out of the blue, just kick Kathy for no reason. She didn't know that it was, like, Shelly who was making Shane do it. And then she would tell Kathy, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from Shane. I'll take care of you. You know what? Let's hide you in the closet. And she would lock Kathy in the closet for hours on end. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she would say, I'm doing it to save you. I'm doing it to protect you from him because otherwise he's going to just keep beating you. So Kathy was now losing weight. Her skin was riddled with bruises and scrapes. Her hair was falling out from the abuse. And also Shelly was restricting food. Her dental work was failing. Nikki and Shane at this point were getting so frustrated that Kathy wouldn't leave. Like this was the thing that they were like, hey, she's beating us less. She's focusing on us less. But they felt sick to their stomach about what they were witnessing and what was happening to Kathy, obviously. But at the same time, they're like, we're kids. We don't have driver's licenses. We don't have a car. We don't have any additional family. This is their only family. If they they go anywhere else, they're like homeless. She's an adult. Like, why doesn't she just leave? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And at the point that they were thinking this, Kathy did still have a car, but soon the car, along with almost all of Kathy's other possessions, began to disappear, sold by Shelly and the profits going in her own pocket. Oh my God. Soon... Shelly told Kathy that she needed the playroom spot for Tori's crib and downgraded her to sleeping on the floor in the furnace room, a room that always smelled like diesel. Oh, my God. I'm sure that's not safe. No. When the family went on trips, Shelly made Kathy ride and even sleep overnight in the trunk of the car. What? I mean, you wouldn't even put a pet in the trunk. Are you kidding me? Where's Dave? First of all, Dave is useless. He was completely under Shelly's spell okay. altogether. I mean, think about him using the hose on Nikki. Like, yeah. who yeah. does that? Yeah. But he's also gone During all the week. week. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't get home until like midnight or 1 a.m., I think, on Fridays. And okay. then he leaves on like Sunday night again. Okay. All the while, she was also feeding her a cocktail of drugs to continue making her weak and compliant. And though for the most part, the kids were getting spared more when Kathy was the target of Shelly's abuse, they weren't totally off the hook. During this period, and for absolutely no reason other than sadism, Shelly forced Shane to strip naked in front of the girls, bound his ankles and wrists with duct tape, and then applied icy hot to his genitals while he cried in pain. Um, I feel like you'd have to go to the doctor for that. Like, how do you even come up with this stuff? Yeah, it's like not a normal brain. No, no. Or heart. A little bit. Yeah, and naturally, of course, they didn't get him medical attention at all. Shane tried to run away after this episode, but the poor boy had nowhere to go. Every time he tried to run, Shelly would hunt him down and bring him back to the house. I don't know where they're living in, in as far as how far away it is from Laura, and I don't know why at this point, like, it didn't seem like a viable option, you know? yeah. That's why I said, like, Laura's in it a lot in the beginning. She's going to come back into the story again in a very helpful role. 
But either the kids didn't think to go there, they had no way of going there, or they were just so scared of trying to contact her at all, you know? Yeah. Poor Kathy was suffering greatly. By April of 1991, she had lost almost 100 pounds. How much did she weigh now? It doesn't say what she got down to. She was overweight when she came into the house. So she was, I'm sure, just down to skin and bones. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Yeah. And her teeth were down to black nubs, they said. Stop it. Around this time, Kelly and Kay, Kathy's sister and mother, received a letter from Kathy in her own handwriting saying that she was hitting the road with her trucker boyfriend, Rocky, and that she wasn't going to be in touch. The general gist of the letter was basically, you both screwed me over and used me, and I don't want any familial ties to you anymore, so I'm never going to speak to you again. Oh. hmm Clearly, Shelly was setting up an alibi for when Kathy died. Oh, my God. She could be like, yeah, you know, Kathy was here for a while, and then she left with her trucker boyfriend. I don't know. So the Notex had scraped together enough money to purchase a house back in Raymond at this point, and they moved into the new home over the summer of 1992. The property was closer to the road, but it still had lots of privacy for Shelley's horrific torture methods. The property also included multiple outbuildings. There was a chicken coop, a tool shed, a well house, a pump house, and a pole house described as the size of a suburban garage. What's a pole house? I had to look this up. It is like, it looks like a garage, but it's a certain type of construction that is made out of poles that makes it easier and cheaper to erect. Okay. The new Raymond house was smaller than their last, so Shane now slept in Nikki's closet with only a blanket on the cramped floor. Oh my God. Yep. And Kathy was relegated to the living room ground. After not too long... Shelly decided that even that was too good for Kathy and moved her out to the pump house, an unheated four-by-four space not hospitable for an animal, let alone a human. Kathy was now kept nude almost 100% of the time and was very, very sick. Yeah, she was like barely letting her wear a pair of underpants. She was making her do all of these chores in the nude, barefoot. Oh, my God. Yeah, she reportedly made a few attempts to escape, including one time while she was completely in the nude. But due to her weakened state, Shelly always managed to recapture her. Oh, my God. There was even a report that one of Sammy's friend's mothers had been driving by and was like, wait, I think I just saw a naked woman like on their property or like on the street near their property and thought it was Shelly. Because she didn't know anyone else lived there. Well, yeah. And like who would be running around naked in someone else's yard? Exactly. And so like one of Sammy's friends was like, hey, this is super weird. But why was your mom running around naked? My mom told me that she saw her. And so Sammy went home and told Shelly. And Shelly was like, oh, shit. They must have seen Kathy. And so she ended up springing this whole story, inviting this girl over and being like, oh, there was a short circuit. The hot tub, because they had a hot tub, was short circuiting. She even created like a burn mark and was like, so I jumped out of the hot tub because I didn't want to get electrocuted. Your mom must have drove by at that exact moment. I'm so humiliated. Oh my God. Pathological liar. Came up with a whole cover story. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, this entire time, Shelly is still pretending to have cancer. Like, I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. Like, Dave Notek thinks that this entire time she's somehow going for cancer treatments. 
<laughs> she was doing this both to elicit sympathy, but also to get money from relatives saying that she needed the funds for her cancer treatments. Oh my God. Normally in a story like this, we'd be talking a lot more about somebody lying about having cancer and like doing ridiculous things like putting white powder all over her face and like shaving her eyebrows off to try to make herself look sicker. Uh, but this is like, that's like nothing compared to the like horrible things that she's it's doing to the babies. Yeah. It, no, it's nothing. It's like, there was so much more about some of like the financial things she was doing that was fraud, the lying about cancer. There was like so much in the book about like all of these myriad scams and activities that she was doing, but it just all pales in comparison yeah. to the horrific yeah. torture that she's inflicting on these children and people, you know? Yeah, I could not agree with you more. The torture of Kathy continued. She wasn't allowed to use the bathroom and she was too weak to pull herself outside once. So she was forced to defecate in a Tupperware container. When Shelly discovered the Tupperware container, she was irate and demanded that Dave waterboard Kathy to teach her a lesson. This one's kind of hard to listen to. So if you wanted trigger warning, skip ahead. I'd recommend like a minute or two here. But this is a description of how this went down from Greg Olson's book, If You Tell. Shelly instructed her husband to build a seesaw device with a wide plank over a metal fulcrum made out of an old tank from the pole building. Without saying a word, Dave went about it as Shelly barked orders. This is what they needed to punish Kathy. A bucket of water was placed at one end of the board. You two stand watch, Shelly told Nikki and Shane. Shane quietly muttered to Nikki that while he didn't think any of the abuse being inflicted on Kathy could be worse, this was a whole new level of fucked up. Shelly brought Kathy, now naked, from the pump house. Shelly helped her walk because by that point, Kathy was having a difficult time moving. Oh, my God. She's, like, already, like, too weak to be a human. Exactly. She'd lost a lot of weight, and the sight of her made Nikki nearly gag. She was black and blue all over, and her skin hung in soft red folds. Oof. I'm sorry, Kathy repeated. Please don't do this. Shut the fuck up, Shelly snapped. You are no good piece of shit, and you're going to listen to me. Kathy begged and pleaded. She looked at Nikki and Shane with an expression Nikki read as, won't anyone help me? Dave put Kathy on the sheet of plywood face down. She tried to fight him, but she was too weak. He pinned her down and ran duct tape over her body to hold her like a mummy on a stick. Oh my God. Shelly gave her husband a signal and he lowered Kathy's face and head into the bucket. He continued to hold her down for a moment. It wasn't meant to drown her, just to get her to follow Shelly's orders, to be a better person. Once it got going, Shelly told Nikki to watch the road from the front deck, and she immediately went there. Shane was directed to the driveway to make sure that the family across the road couldn't hear Kathy's screams. Sammy was positioned in the yard to stand watch. They could hear their mother laughing at Kathy, calling her stupid, fat, ugly. You're worthless, Kathy. You need to shape up. Nikki tried to shut out the sounds of Kathy's cries as the woman's head was lifted and submerged into the water. Kathy's voice was on the lower register, and it was more of a gurgling than a true scream as she fought for air and begged for mercy. Nikki stood at her post while her mom barked orders and her dad did the dunking. The scene oh was shocking. God. Shocking. A horror show and how incongruous with the pretty bucolic setting of the country. Apple trees horses in the pasture, and a naked woman bound to a board and being dunked repeatedly. Yep. The waterboarding didn't go on long, maybe 10 minutes or so, long enough to freeze the image of Kathy naked, duct taped, and screaming for help in Nikki's memory forever. 
Later, Shelley would characterize the waterboarding punishment as a shower or a bath. Her best friend hadn't been keeping herself clean, so Shelley and Dave had employed the technique as a way to wash her. None who witnessed it saw it that way, of course. It had nothing to do with bathing Kathy. Ugh. <sighs> so she survived that? She survived that. Jesus. I mean, the way I'm imagining her, I don't know how she it's, survived that. I mean, it's shocking she lasts this long. I mean, Shelly would also deprive Kathy of food until she was starving and then offer her a smoothie. Kathy's smoothie was a disgusting mash of rotten produce and spoiled ground beef that Shelly would blend and force Kathy to drink. Kathy hung in there for a while, a testament to the fighter that still existed somewhere inside of her, but it was clear to the children and Dave Notek when he was actually home that Kathy was dying. The final straw came when Shelly decided to actually allow Kathy inside for a warm bath and the weakened woman slipped as she got into the tub. Oh, my God crashed into the sliding glass shower door and was sliced to ribbons. Though Shelly bandaged her wounds and now allowed her to stay in the house, she didn't allow her to seek medical attention for obvious reasons. Like, it would be of clear course. that that woman was being tortured. Yeah. So Kathy's condition deteriorated to the point where she could no longer speak without slurring and her eyes would routinely roll into the back of her head. She was almost certainly brain damaged at this point from the repeated yeah. beatings and horrific living conditions. Yeah, and being starved, being fed rotten food. I mean, it, like the list goes on and on. Yeah. In July of 1994, Dave returned home from Whidbey Island to find Kathy choking on her own vomit. He desperately tried to scoop the vomit out of her mouth with his hands, but she stopped breathing. Obviously, they should have called 911 at this point. Yep. But... Shelly couldn't let Kathy's battered body incriminate her. So instead, Dave tried to do CPR, but it was to no avail. No. Kathy remained unresponsive. She was dead. A once funny, kind, generous human being had died by torture over years. Yeah. How long altogether? Well, this is the summer of 1994, and she went to live with them in 1988. Shit. Christmas. So, yeah, yeah. six years. Mm-hmm. Probably like a little less, like five and a half, but still. I mean, this is this is a really horrific situation. I mean, this is like one of the worst. We've covered murders in so many ways. We've never had somebody strip away somebody's humanity and torture them to death over a years-long period. Someone who's their best friend. Who's supposed to be their best yeah. friend. While also doing similar things to their children and their nephew. Yeah, and having their children and nephew witness you killing that person. Exactly. And not to mention making the children participate in whatever yep. way so that they'll have that guilt for yep. the rest of their lives. So the kids discovered Kathy's lifeless body and Shane begged Shelly and David to call an ambulance. But of course they refused. Shelly packed up Shane, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori and sent them to a motel while she and Dave disposed of Kathy's corpse by retrofitting a fire pit with heavy gauge tin and steel and spent the next few days cremating Kathy. Oh my God. Eventually, Dave Notek took the bones and the ash to the ocean in buckets and waited until he knew that the tide would take what was left of Kathy deep out to the sea. When the children came home, all but Tori knew the horrifying truth of what had happened. Shelley warned the kids that if anyone told, all of them would go to jail. 
she coached Shane, Nikki, and Sammy to tell the others that Kathy had taken off with her long-haul trucker boyfriend to see the world. Almost immediately, Shelly became distrustful of Shane, believing that he would turn the family into the authorities. She tried several times to convince Dave to, quote, take care of the problem, but uh, Dave loved his nephew. and What, like kill him? him? Yeah. She was like, he's going to tell. He's the weak link. He's not like, you know. Our blood. He's not my kid. Yeah, yeah he's going to tell somebody. So, Shelly switched tactics and instead planted a bloody pair of little Tori's underpants in Shane's closet and tried to convince Dave that Shane was molesting Tori. Ugh, it's so on brand for Shelly. So on brand. Dave naturally went apeshit and beat Shane black and blue. Shane was angry at the horrible accusation and now truly scared for his life, so he later told Nikki that he planned to run away once and for all. Not much longer after that, in February of 1995, Shane disappeared for good. Nikki was 19 at the time and recalled vividly that her mother claimed that Shane had left her a birdhouse as a gift and a note that read, I love you, mom. As much as Nikki wanted to believe that Shane was out there finally free from Shelly's abusive reach, she knew that her cousin hated Shelly with a burning passion and he would have never left her such a note. Furthermore, she and Shane were like best friends and siblings. He would have absolutely reached out to say goodbye, even if it was just like a phone call after he got out safely, you know? Yeah. Eventually, Shelly spun a yarn that Shane was on a fishing boat in Alaska. But Nikki, of course, always had suspicions about his disappearance. With both Kathy and Shane gone, Nikki once again became target number one for Shelly. Over the next few months, Shelly attacked the girl with a knife, locked her out of the house naked for hours and forced her to perform yard work from sunup to sundown wearing only her underwear. Nikki even tried to commit suicide by hanging herself in the chicken coop, but the twine noose broke and she survived. Sammy found her while doing some chores, Nikki crying and laughing at the same time. She pointed to the broken twine on the beam ahead and said, I tried to kill myself, but I can't even do that right. And the two sisters just fell over laughing, apparently. It's just the old dark humor to, like, get you through. There was, like, nothing else to do, you know? Was Sammy still getting it lighter than her at this time? Yes. Sammy, in general, as the favored middle child, for the most part, she did not completely, you know. Of course. I mean, she had to witness all of this stuff. So that's in and of itself is so emotionally abusive. Yes, exactly. But um, she seemed to get it a lot lighter than everybody else who came under, you know, Shelly's spell. More than anything in the world, Nikki wanted to go to college and get the heck out of her parents' hellhouse. She was pleasantly surprised when Shelly allowed her to enroll at a local community college. She even managed to get a student grant to defray the cost of her higher education. But, of course, little by little, Shelly chipped away at her dreams. First, she began hiding or destroying all of Nikki's nice clothes, so she was left with only one pair of dirty sweatpants that she used for yard work. So she was like, I, "Like this is not, I can't go to class like this. I look like, you know, a slob. Then Shelly took away her room, making her sleep on the living room floor, just like she had once done to Kathy. Last, she took away her money and her car access. Nikki had been actually happy for once in her life, and it had all been snatched out from under her little by little just to give her mother that sadistic thrill. Yep. 
She had no way to get to school, no clothes to wear, and no money to remedy either one of those things. But Nikki wouldn't give up. She began fighting Shelly when she tried to beat her. So she starts fighting back. She's like, screw this. I have nothing left to lose. You're not going to like let me go out like this, you know? Yeah, it's horrible. Shelly became so angry that her eldest daughter was actually fighting back that she sent Nikki away to one of Dave's sisters who lived in British Columbia, Canada. And her experience living with her aunt Trish for those few happy months were some of the best in Nikki's entire life. She began to piece herself back together as a human. Eventually, Shelly, of course, found out that Nikki was actually having a good time and was actually happy, so demanded that she return and then sent her to live on Whidbey Island with Dave during the week. So she also found out at this point how her stepfather lived. He was for the most part throughout their entire relationship, the sole income earner for the family. And so they're like, oh, he must have like an apartment or something in Woodby Island and that's where he lives during the week. And they found out, nope, he was signing over his entire paycheck to Shelly. He was living in a tent. What? On the ground. And he would have to go to a like public park to shower that had shower stalls like in the camp bathroom. And in order to eat, he was going to a food bank for homeless people. Oh, my God. And that's what she was forcing her husband to live as all week long so that she could have more money for herself. She, like, barely gave him enough money to get to and from Raymond. So Nikki's like, this is screwed up. I'm going to, like, bounce out of this whole situation. And she miraculously managed to get two jobs, one at a Baskin-Robbins scooping ice cream and another cleaning motel rooms. The cleaning job supplied her with a tiny, dirty trailer to live in. And she loved it. She was ecstatic. It was freedom. Oh my God. Good girl. I know. The bravery. Also, it's really hard when you're not living somewhere warm or you don't have access to a shower to get any job, let alone two. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Incredible. Meanwhile, Sammy almost came clean to a school counselor who had noticed the telltale signs of abuse on her teenage body. But in the end, she couldn't go through with it. So the teachers were noticing, like, she started just being honest about stuff. They were like, well, where's your homework? And she'd be like, my mom destroyed it because her mom loved, like, doing stuff like that to her. She, yeah, just loves throwing stuff out. (laughs) She does love throwing things out. Just throws out. She's like, this is your homework and throws it out. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So, basically, Sammy, like, was kind of getting honest. She was like, my mom threw it out. Or why are you late? It's like, because my mom made me do uh, yard work until it was, like, past this time and she wouldn't let me take the car. Like, you know, she was starting to be honest about all of this stuff. And so they it finally called her It has to be really in. annoying just lying about what's going on and covering someone's ass who's abusing you. And that's what Sammy said. She just had had enough. She was like, I'm, I'm just going to tell everyone the truth now and see what happens. And so they finally were like, we've been noticing everything you're telling us. We've been noticing how you look. Like, we are going to take you out of that home, but we need to call and make a report together. You know, we'll stand by your side. We'll do it. And we'll make sure you never have to oh, go home there so again. scary. And she just could not do it. She's, she's like, I lied. I lied about everything. I was just my excuse for not doing things. I blamed it all on my mom, but it wasn't true. My mom's a perfect mom. Ugh. She like years later would be like, I, I don't, I can't tell you why I couldn't do it. I just couldn't because do it. Because she's a I was, child. I know. And I know. And I can see that. You can see that. She's just looking back going like, man, I wish I could have gone through it. But how can you? You've been 
I mean, we talk a lot about people who are groomed, you know, people who are abused, especially if it's your mother. If come it's on. your mother. Come on. come on. It's like the one person who's supposed to love us and protect us. And she she just formed those kids. She, How are you going to go against her, you know? Yeah. As the beloved and favored child who had escaped much of Shelley's worst abuse, she felt loyal to her mother, even loving sometimes. Unlike Nikki, who had never been able to make friends or have a boyfriend, Sammy was actually a popular student. She learned how to compartmentalize her life. Deep down somewhere, she wanted to believe that Shelley did love her and wanted the best for her. But after her mother purposely sabotaged the financial aid portion of Sammy's admissions forms to Evergreen State College, forcing Sammy to miss the enrollment period, she knew she needed to get out. So Sammy concocted an escape plan with the help of her two best friends and ran away. She literally, like, knew her mom was going to take her sister Tori on, like, a shopping trip and was like, told her two best friends, I put all of the things that I want in a garbage bag. We are leaving now at this time. Go sneak into my house, take the garbage bags, put them in my car. And then when she got home, she got a phone call from her friend being like, everything's in your car. And she was like, hey, mom, my friend Laura broke down down the street. Can I go use the car to go pick her up and take her home? And her mom was like, sure, have at it. She literally got in the car and drove away forever. Good. Mm-hmm. So apparently when she did do that at first, the first stop she made was to her boyfriend's house, but she knew she couldn't stay there for good because her mom would find her, of course. So she called Nikki in a panic and she's like, I just escaped, but I know like it's so stupid. I can't stay at my boyfriend's house. She's going to find me. Where should I go? Nikki now out of the house was like, go to grandma Laura's. She'd be so happy to see you. She's calling me. She wants to know where Shane is. Like she's worried about us. You need to go to her house. And so her boyfriend's mother actually like drove her to Lara's where she went to stay. When Shelly lost Sammy, she went insane. And she's like, I know Nikki had something to do with this. So she gets Dave to begin to stalk Nikki at Baskin Robbins, going as far to throw a brick through the storefront window and then have Shelly call to report that Nikki had been involved in it. This was an effort, of course, to get Nikki fired so she would be forced to move back into her house and then once again under Shelly's control. Unreal. It didn't work though, right? It did not work. Terrified, Nikki moved to Bellingham and in with Lara and Sammy. So at this point, Nikki got a job working at a nursing home with Lara. And though Shelly and David tried to leave anonymous reports accusing Nikki of terrible acts against the aging residents, the administration could find no truth to these bizarre anonymous allegations. Wow. Eventually, Sammy reconciled with her parents under the condition that they fund her college education at Evergreen State. And shockingly, they actually followed through. This was a huge turning point for Sammy's life, who she got to like live in a dorm and have a boyfriend and begin to live a life just like any other college student. Yeah. Tori, the youngest, had mostly escaped the abuse and also didn't have to contend with the horrific memories of what her parents had done to Kathy. But soon, Shelly's evil attentions found their way to her as well. Oh, no. So she would hide or destroy Tori's homework, and then beat her for getting bad grades. I mean, I just forgot that she was suffocating her as an infant already. As an infant. Yeah. She once beat Tori with a fishing pole so badly that the pole broke. Oh, my God. 
But even worse than the physical beatings was when Shelly refused to let her bathe and made her wear the same dirty clothes to school for a week, humiliating Tori. Another thing that Shelly inflicted upon Tori was bizarre puberty checks. What? Where she would force the preteen to disrobe in front of her to examine her breasts and vagina. What? Yeah. And she even one point was like, Tori, cut off some of your pubic hair for your baby book. And Tori was like, Mom, I refuse. No, I'm not going to do that. That's so gross. It's so humiliating. Please don't make me. And she's like, what? Your older sisters did it. I have it in their baby book. It's like totally normal. What do you think? I'm perverted. What is your problem, Tori? And she like berated her and berated her and berated her until like Tori went into the bathroom and like cut a little bit of her pubic hair and came out and tried to give it to her. And her mother laughed in her face and was like, ew, you're disgusting. It was obviously a joke. Ew, you're so gross. Get rid of that. Just to like humiliate her and F with her mind. Shelly somehow managed to get a job around this time. She became a caseworker for the Olympic Area Agency on Aging in Raymond. So, great. This monster is responsible for taking care of a vulnerable population at this point. Yeah. Come on, guys. Oof. While Shelly was helping an elderly hoarder find homes for her staggering 80 cats... She met a nice man in his mid-50s named Ron Woodward, who had worked with Habitat for Humanity and was helping place the poor felines. Shelly and Ron hit it off right away, and just like Kathy before him, Ron was also at a rough spot in life. Ron had lost his father in June of 1996 and had been dumped by his longtime partner of 17 years, a man named Gary Nielsen, shortly after. Oh, no. Yeah, so he lost his dad and he lost his super long-time boyfriend. By 1999, Ron was in dire straits. He was having trouble caring for his aging mother and about to lose his trailer due to non-payment of rent. Eventually, his mother was forced to move in with one of his siblings and Ron felt like he had truly lost everything. Unlucky for him, he had a kind friend named Shelly who was willing to take him in. Yeah. Just like with Kathy, Shelly sweetly reeled in Ron, setting him up in Sammy's bedroom and bonding with him. He used to call her Shelly dear. She began to break Ron down little by little, just like she had with Kathy, a process that caused the victim to become the proverbial frog in the boiling pot who doesn't realize it's getting killed until it's much too late. Yep. What's she going to do to this poor soul? Well, she did all of her classic moves. She began with cutting remarks, gaslighting, physical abuse, and progressed to drugging him, restricting food, restricting toilet and shower access, eventually evicting him from Sammy's room, and forcing him to sleep on the floor of a small office room. Shelly got to a point where she no longer allowed Ron in the house during daylight hours and forced him to do yard work in his underwear for hours on end. Tori, who had been too young to remember the atrocities committed against Kathy, was horrified. So this was all relatively new. She is, I think, something like 11 and 15 years younger than the older girls. So a lot of their abuse... All of Kathy's abuse, she didn't really witness. And her mother did do super abusive things to her, too. But how she treated Ron was, like, on a whole different level, you know? Yep. 
And she really loved Ron. When he had first moved in, he had spent a lot of time with the preteen telling her stories about Egyptian mythology, which was a passion of his. He was like this very sweet, loving, interesting, and interested guy before Shelly got her hands on him. So Tori even called him Uncle Ron. They were super close. So when all of this like torture started escalating, Tori naturally wanted to help him. But anytime she would try to do anything to like alleviate his pain or put herself between her mom and Ron, Shelly would just increase the abuse with harsher punishments and then tell Tori that it was her fault, you know? Of course. Yep. So at at a certain point, there was nothing Tori could do because she couldn't even intervene without things getting worse. Yep. Meanwhile, of course, Shelly was not exactly employee of the month. She lied, defrauded, stole, and manipulated from, you know, the agency that she worked with until she was finally fired. Vindictive as ever, she made Ron call, harass, and even stalk the employees who had reported her egregious actions. I mean, it got so bad that these employees of hers and coworkers actually called the police about Ron because he was like driving by, driving by their houses, driving by where they worked and like giving them the finger, making crazy phone calls all at Shelly's bidding. Okay. In October of 2001, Shelly further alienated Ron from his surviving family by goading him into writing a mean, cruel, and downright aggressive letter to his mother, ultimately severing contact with the elderly woman. Wow. Yeah. She was also, like, in touch with the woman. It was very weird. Like, she was, like, talking to Ron's mom and being like, I don't know what's going on with Ron. Like, I'm trying to repair your relationship, but he's just so angry. Meanwhile, like, goading him and being like, tell her you're never going to talk to her again and all this stuff, you know? Oh, my God. That same summer, Nikki had finally revealed to Laura that her mother had murdered Kathy and she feared for Shane's life. Feared that he was no longer alive, that is. Yeah. Laura and Nikki went to the police and made a statement, but the police told them that they needed to corroborate the story with Sammy. Now, Sammy was in college and she was still kind of scared of her mom. So when she got the call from the sheriff, she was like, I'm just not going to call him back. So she didn't call him back, but they never pursued it again. After they didn't hear from Sammy, they just dropped the case, basically. So Nikki would try again by faxing a statement and then once more showing up in person at the urging of a boyfriend, but nothing was ever followed up upon. Isn't that crazy? It's horrible. They're like, I'd like to report a murder of a missing person. And they're like, yeah, maybe can we talk to your little sister and see if that actually happened? And I don't know. We might not. Yeah, they like don't believe them. Crazy. So both Nikki and Sammy believed that Tori was being spared the abuse that they had suffered but that was not the case. By this time, Shelly had been dangerously restricting Tori's food and forcing her to participate in cruel and humiliating activities like doing jumping jacks in the nude to the point of exhaustion in the middle of a winter night. Wow. When she wasn't torturing her daughter or house guest, Shelly had managed to worm her way into the heart and home of an elderly Pearl Harbor survivor named James Mac McClintock and become his caretaker. She convinced the poor man to leave her everything in his will. So you can guess what's going to happen to Mac. 
When Sammy told Lara and Nikki what was going on, Lara was livid. From If You Tell, Greg Olson's book, he wrote... Laura Watson hit the roof when she heard through Sammy that Shelly was caring for an elderly man named Mac. She hadn't been happy about Ron hanging around the no-tech place either. Something was going on. She was sure of it. She immediately phoned Deputy Bergstrom at the Pacific County Sheriff's Office. She asked about the Kathy Lorraine case, and Bergstrom told her that the case had gone cold. He was in the midst of a big trial and would get back to it as soon as he could, he told her. I keep working it when I have time, he said. That didn't sit well with Shelley's stepmother at all. She phoned her local chief of police, Dale Schobert, who urged her to give the Pacific County authorities a chance to build the case. They're probably working on it behind the scenes, he told her. That scarcely satisfied Lara. All she could think about was how Shelley had already done the unthinkable, and she worried about what she might do next. She also checked in with Shane's maternal grandparents, who she knew had been worried about Shane, and they said the same thing. They hadn't heard from him either. Sammy also said she'd never been directly contacted, which wasn't strictly true. She had just never called the sheriff back. And Nikki was never contacted after she reached out the second time following her statement about Kathy. Not a single word. Oh, my God. How many more people have to die around Shelly? This is like a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Where, I mean, I imagine as Nikki, you go in twice, you fax a statement, it must feel like a horror movie where you're screaming into this abyss and nobody is listening to you. And the people that are supposed to protect you, when you finally get the, I mean, think about the strength and bravery needed to go to the police. Yep. Did the police have anything to say about this, about how dismissive they were? No, but I do think it contributes to the result later on in sentencing, which we'll talk about. Okay. I mean, this whole thing is is terrible because obviously if they had intervened at this point, they could have saved lives. Things at this point were going from bad to worse for Ron. Tori witnessed Shelly forcing Ron to drink his own urine. Um, as well as jump off the roof onto the gravel drive repeatedly, deeply injuring his feet. Apparently she witnessed he was on the roof doing some work for them clearly just like Kathy was getting weakened and he slipped and fell off the roof. Yep. And Dave Notek was there too. And Shelly started screaming at him to get back up on the roof because he was a lazy piece of shit. And she was like, jump off again. And she made him do it multiple times where he most likely fractured something, but more than that, ripped up all of his feet. I mean, there was just terrible cuts and deep, deep wounds. Then poor old Mac had a, quote, accident. Shelly was vague about what happened, and Ron ultimately called 911 to say that Mac had fallen, hit his head, and was now dead. The examining doctor <sighs> referred the case for further investigation, and the coroner found that Mac had died by blunt impact to the head. So, sure, it was possible that he could have slipped and fallen and hit his head, but it's also just as possible that someone could have hit him over the head. Yep. It was never investigated, and Shelly inherited his $145,000 estate. What? In March of 2002, a little over a month after Mac's death, Laura followed up once more with Deputy Jim Bergstrom to tell him that she suspected Shelly of killing the elderly man. But again, nothing was done. In May of 2002, Nikki married the love of her life at Lara's home with her sister Sammy by her side. 
Nikki had done the impossible. She had broken free from her abusive home and built a beautiful and healthy life. Wow. I mean, shivers, like actual shivers, thinking the hell she went through and to get healthy enough to propel yourself forward in life in any way and be able to even love somebody, you know? I'm so glad that Laura was there for her. By 2003, Ron's condition had deteriorated badly because he had been forced to do the yard work without shoes and jump off the roof into the gravel. His feet were, I mean, just a mess, like terrible ripped open sores that were getting badly infected. And instead of taking him to the hospital, Shelly instead forced Ron to put his feet in a pot of boiling water and bleach. What? Boiling water and bleach was how she treated his wounds. Tori would later say, I remember the smell of it was like the worst smell ever of my life. It was like the smell of bleach and decomposing flesh. Like it was burning his skin off. And it was just terrible. He smelled like he was rotting. Literally the smell of dying flesh. He smelled like that for a month up until the very end. <sighs> like he's just dying in front of these people. I mean, that's what and happened nobody's Kathy. stopping yeah. it. Yep. Just like Kathy before him, Ron became immobile and unable to walk or really speak. So when Shelly told Tori one morning that Ron had moved into Mac's place, but to tell the police he had moved to Tacoma, Tori knew something was very wrong. When Tori pushed too hard for answers about what had happened to Ron, Shelly stripped her naked and forced her to crouch in a dog crate full of feces and then sprayed her with a hose. Tori learned her lesson and kept her mouth shut. So Ron was dead, of course. Later, Dave Notek would say that on July 22nd, 2003, Shelly called and demanded he return home early from work. When he arrived, Shelly told him that she had found Ron dead on the back porch. Because he was badly burned, cut, and bruised, she once again did not call the authorities. Instead, she dressed him in clean sweatpants, clothing she had refused to let him wear while he was alive, put the body in a couple of sleeping bags, and then hoisted him into the chest freezer in one of their outbuildings. And Dave helped with this. Of course he did. Yes. So there was a hitch in the get-along around this time because Pacific County was having a burn ban when Ron was murdered. So Dave couldn't cremate Ron in the fire pit like he did before. Instead, he dug a temporary burial pit in their yard, and after putting Ron's body in the ground, he covered the spot with ash and fir branches. He planned to dig up the corpse once the burn ban was over and then cremate it. So Shelly had sent Tori to stay with Sammy while Dave was burying Ron. Okay, so they're like in touch. So basically, Tori was in touch with Sammy, but not Nikki. Okay. At this point, Shelly really thought she still had control over Sammy. Okay. And to a point she did, you know, because Sammy's not calling the police back and stuff. Okay. And so she allowed Tori to have a relationship with Sammy, but not Nikki. And Tori would later say that she began to believe that Nikki was a truly evil person because, of course, Shelly was telling her yeah. how abusive and terrible and mean and horrible Nikki was and how she was this dreadful human being. And that's why the family didn't talk to her. Talk to her, yeah. Yeah. 
And so when she came up to visit Sammy, Sammy was like, guess what? I have a surprise for you. Nikki's going to come and hang out with us. And Tori was actually a little terrified. She's like, I don't want to hang out with her. I don't want anything to do with her, you know? And then she actually got to hang out with Nikki and she's like, wow, Nikki is like this incredible, beautiful, wonderful person. And like the two sisters got to start forming the secret relationship, which was always secret because Shelly assumed Sammy wasn't talking to Nikki either. Yep. Like Nikki had try- had to sneak away and not tell anyone that Nikki got married when she went to Nikki's wedding. And she had to lie to her mother and say she was like doing something else that weekend. Yep. So when all of the girls are finally together, Tori tearfully confessed to her sisters the abuse that she was suffering at home and how she also suspected that Shelly had killed Ron. Sammy and Nikki were horrified to hear that their youngest sister was being tortured, but not surprised about Ron, sadly. So they genuinely felt terrible about this. They intellectually probably, they were like, I should have known that she would do that to Tori too. Like, why did we think she wasn't going to do that to her? But the two sisters had talked about it at length and they were like, I don't know, it's a different time. And, you know, mom has a job and, you know, maybe she's settled a little bit. Tori seems really happy. You know, like they gave themselves all the excuses not to intervene because of number one, two, they're just getting their own lives back on track. Like they are like, just trying to survive, you know? Yeah. So when they found out, like, they had clear proof now that their little sister, who was 14 at the time, was being abused, and that it is most likely that Shelly had killed again, they were like, okay, enough is enough. We need to go to the police, and we need to force them to take action. And we need to get Tori away from that woman, you know? Yeah. From If You Tell... On August 6th, 2003, Nikki and Sammy drove down to Pacific County to tell the sheriff what they knew to be true. They were as scared and nervous as they'd ever been in their lives. The drive was punctuated by what-ifs and then long stretches of anguished silence. Tears, too. What was happening was big. Bigger than them. Big because it was overdue and, the sisters knew, likely too late to save Ron. It was Nikki's second time sitting down with Deputy Jim Bergstrom. The first time had been an epic failure. Nothing had come of it at all. Why hadn't anyone helped? It couldn't be laid solely at the feet of Sammy for not talking to the sheriff. No. (laughs) Of course not. In fact, Bergstrom and another deputy had been at Monaghan Landing to inquire about Ron. They knew that he was holed up there and that Shelley Notek's history was less than stellar. Around town, people called her Psycho Shelley. They also knew Kathy had last been seen alive in Shelley's company and that Ron had been the one to call 911 when Mac had supposedly fallen from his wheelchair, leaving Shelley the ultimate recipient of the World War II vet's estate. Which, I kind of think she forced Ron to kill Mac. Of course. Yeah, she doesn't get her own hands dirty, really. No, she doesn't have to. Mm -mm. With tears and long pauses to work up the courage for what they needed to say, the Notech sisters gave their story, the same one Nikki had told before. This time it was different. This time they were believed. Others from the prosecutor's office and law enforcement came in and out of the interview room at the Pacific County Sheriff's Office. Deputy Bergstrom and members of the prosecutor's staff recorded everything they said. It was at once shocking and painful. Nikki and Sammy saw the outcome as twofold a rescue operation for their little sister, and accountability for their parents for everything they've done. 
If Ron's dead, Nikki told the deputy, her voice breaking as she looked him squarely in the eye, you could have stopped it. (sighs) The next day, 14-year-old Tori was removed from the home by CPS. Once in custody, she told the deputy to get a search warrant ASAP because she believed her parents were going to destroy evidence by burning Ron's possessions. Shelly sent Dave to the police to find out why Tori had been taken from them, and he did the one thing she never thought he'd do in a million years. He confessed. Good. He confessed everything. Kathy, Ron, and of course, Shane. So what happened to Shane? Dave initially would try to say that Shane shot himself while screwing around with a rifle. But of course, the truth was far more sinister. Shane at one point told Nikki that he had found some Polaroids of Kathy. And in it, Kathy's body was covered with black and blue marks and she was naked. And so it was a clear indicator that she had been abused. So he told this to Nikki. He did not like show her the pictures or anything. At some point, Nikki unfortunately mentioned to Shelly that she believed Shane had a picture of Kathy. Okay. So remember that Shelly was already paranoid about Shane? Yep. So she thinks that the reason why he has this picture is because he's going to go to the police blackmail. with evidence. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, not blackmail, I guess, if you're just telling the truth to the police. Just but telling in, the truth. In Shelly's yeah. eyes, yes, he was a traitor. Yeah, he was either going to go report her or he was going to use it as blackmail so he could escape, maybe. Like, I'll take this to the police unless you let me go, you know? So, at this point, this was around the time that he got beat for supposedly molesting Tori, which obviously never happened. And Shelly tore apart the whole house. She tore apart the outbuildings. She could never find this photo. It is it is unsure whether this photo actually ever existed or not. Okay. But... That was the final straw. She, at this point, badgered Dave over and over and over again to kill his nephew until one cold February night in 1995, while Shane slept in the pole building, Dave crept into the room and shot his nephew in the head. He then burned the body to ash and bone and got rid of the remains in the ocean just like he had done with Kathy. And he admitted this to the cops? He admitted it all to the cops. Whoa. Yeah, he admitted it ultimately. The first story is that Shane had killed himself somehow, but he destroyed the body, you know? Yeah, yeah. Lara, Nikki, and Sammy were devastated to discover sweet, goofy Shane had been murdered, though they had always known somewhere deep down that it was most likely... They had clung to the fantasy of him happy on a fishing boat in beautiful Alaska. (sighs) Shelly and Dave Notek were immediately arrested. The day after the arrest, Sammy turned 25. She celebrated by filing guardianship papers to obtain custody of Tori. Oh my God, she's amazing. Amazing. It was later granted and the two sisters moved into a two-bedroom apartment in Seattle. Okay, that's incredible. What a hero. When Like so many 25 years old and she's like, that's what she's doing on her birthday. That's insane. Yeah. That's Think about what we were doing when we were 25. We were selfish little assholes. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's remarkable. Incredible. Okay, so now you're going to get angry, Andy. We're, gonna, we're getting into the Andy anger portion of the podcast. I mean, this entire episode. <laughs> is infuriating. 
both Dave and Shelly made plea deals. In February 2004, Dave pleaded down his first degree murder Of course murder she charge. did, though. Of course she did. Mm-hmm to second-degree murder and unlawful disposal of human remains. He got 15 years in prison and is currently out of jail entirely. Oh, my God, Jesse. Where is he? What is he doing? He's in the Northwest somewhere working at some shitty job being miserable. Okay. I mean, I think he deserved to spend the rest of his life in prison for his involvement in these many murders. So I'm not happy about it, but I would say he's probably less of a risk unless he gets back together with Shelly. Well, yeah, I was going to say he also, unfortunately, is a victim of her as well. Yes, he is. I give, you know, zero shits about him. But I would say if he never got back together with Shelly Notek, then do I think he would kill again? Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely not. But let's talk about Shelley. So Pacific County prosecutors told the victim's families that they did not believe that they could make first-degree murder charges stick. There was no body for Kathy. And an autopsy on Ron could not prove how he had died. Yeah, but they have the body and the confession. They have a confession through Dave, but he refused to testify against her. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he said he wouldn't testify at her trial. So what are they, what is anyone getting out of this plea deal then? They're getting the fact that she will go to prison and she's okay. going to get a reduced sentence. So 10 months after her arrest, Shelly entered an Alford plea, which we've talked about in the past. It's yeah. basically when they still assert their innocence, but recognize that the state has compelling evidence against them. She was sentenced to 22 years behind bars for the second degree murder of Kathy and the manslaughter of Ron. And the most terrifying thing is that she is scheduled to be released next June of 2022. Wow. She will be 68 years old and I believe just as dangerous as ever. So what's up with her kids? What are their opinions on this? Greg Olson said that Nikki, Sammy, and Tori actually wanted him to tell the story, that they reached out to him (gasps) because they were like, Yeah, basically because of the plea deals and because of, I'm guessing, law enforcement's incompetence in this case, the whole thing was kind of swept under the rug. Like, people didn't know about this story until Greg Olson told it. Wow. And they were like, look, our mom is going to get out someday, and we want everyone to know. We want every person possible to know what a monster she is so that no matter what happens when she gets out, people are aware of her and they're afraid of her and they know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's like they spent so much of their life minimizing and covering up for her and all of those terrible things she did and they have suffered through it and they refuse to be quieted now. They're like, her crimes need to be spoken about, you know? So brave. So all of the now-grown sisters still live in the Pacific Northwest. Nikki and her husband have a successful business and live in a beautiful million-dollar home in the suburbs of Seattle. Oh, my God, they amazing. Have, <laughs> like, he described it in the book. It sounds incredible. They have stunning, happy children. Sammy and her husband have kids as well. And Sammy works as an elementary school teacher. Oh, my God. And Tori grew into a beautiful young woman and is now a social media manager in Central Oregon. So the sisters remain a special 
especially close, texting and talking on the phone daily. So this is an unbelievably depressing murder and torture story, but I think it's also a survival story and a story about sisterhood and resilience and strength and love. Totally. That's unbelievable that they're able to, and if, I mean, it's the mom that they all have in common. It's Shelly. And they were still able to say, fuck that. We're going to all stay close. We're all going to stay in touch. We're going to help each other out. I mean, they were brave on their own to get out, you know, initially. And then to stick together like this is incredible. They just continued to lift each other up, you know, one by one at each part of the story. They they worked so hard. I mean, it would have been so easy to be like, play the blame game of who had it worse and who abandoned who. But instead, to have that love to forgive and uplift one another is truly incredible. So yeah, so Nikki and Tori don't speak to Dave. I guess Sammy is kind of in touch with him and none of them talk to their mother. Okay. Of course. I wonder why, I guess Sammy was like young when he was around, but it's not even her biological dad. It's not even her biological dad. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I didn't I didn't actually find out whether the two older sisters had reconnected with their biological fathers. So I don't know if that ever happened. I hope it did. I hope that through telling the story, they've reconnected with some other family members. Yeah. I was going to say maybe in the interviews that Greg Olson did and everything too. Yeah, it helped put the families back in touch. Yeah. Okay, guys, this was a heavy episode. So I am so pleased to tell you that I have a Wikipedia fun fact. Is it really fun? It is fun. Raymond Washington, which was the town in which most of this horrific story took place, is also the place where the famous grunge band Nirvana performed their very first show. Amazing. It was March of 1987, and they played at a house party there. You could actually, like, look up the house, and there's, like, a funny note on the internet that's like, it is a private residence. Please do not bother the people inside. (laughs) Oh, my God. Have you heard about the Nirvana baby scandal? Oh, yeah. Isn't he um, suing it for being, like, child pornography or something? Or, like, mental harm? Yes. Yeah, both. But it's, like... I don't know. I think parents sign off on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be suing my parents, bud. I I mean, he's got a point. I don't know if I'd want my tinky little winky out for everybody to see on one of the most famous albums of rock and roll. Seriously. Forever. I know. But you got to take that up with your parents. Take that up with your parents. parents Did that. (laughs) Like, honestly, that's why. Could you imagine, though? Like, I don't even I don't even show picture like bath pictures like like ugh, on my social media that would gross me out so much like no. i can't imagine putting my, my son as, as a baby with his little wee wee out for all the world to see forever yep so that was a wikipedia <laughs> fun fact and a wikipedia not so fun fact yeah <laughs> in conclusion guys choose love and we thank you so much for listening thank you you and as always trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered see you next week bye bye